Of all the ruins in Kashmir, the Martand ruins are both the most remarkable and the most characteristic. No temple was ever built on a finer site. It stands on an open plain where it can be seen to full advantage. Behind it rises a range of snowy mountains and away in the distance before it, first lies the smiling Kashmir Valley and then the whole length of the Pir Panjal range, their snowy summits mingling softly with the azure of the sky. It is one of the most heavenly spots on earth, the finest example of what is known as the Kashmirian style of architecture. The most sublime site occupied by any building in the world, finer than the site of the Parthenon or the Taj or the St. Peter's or of the Escurial, we may take it as the representative or rather the culmination of all the rest. And by it, we must judge the people of Kashmir at their best. The lines I just narrated to you were written by Francis' young husband, who was a British Army officer. He was famous for his travelogues through Central Asia and the Far East. He wrote this in 1909, singing praises of the ruins of the Martanda Temple. I was speaking with one of my followers, who's a rather knowledgeable and a person who knows a lot about Indic matters, and during the conversation I happened to mention Lalita Ditya and to my surprise, she had never heard of him. And that's when it occurred to me that given the state of education, historical education in our country, it is not a surprise that many people today do not know one of the greatest kings, one of the greatest Hindu kings that existed. Because it was this great king Lalita Aditya who built the Martanda Temple. The source for today's episode is a book by Vikram Sampath called The Brave Hearts of Bharat. Lalita Aditya was the fourth ruler of the Karakota dynasty of Kashmir. One of the most popular sources of history of this period is Raj Tarangini, which means the River of Kings, which was written by Kalhan. Kalhan's magnum opus is the most referred to text for any historian researching Kashmir. Kalhan's historical account depicts Kashmir to have been ruled by Hindu rulers in dynasties for over five millennia. The Karkotas drew their descent from the mythical Naga Karkotakas of the Mahabharata. They peacefully transitioned from the Gunandia dynasty whose last king, Baladitya, was airless. Deeply troubled by the absence of a male heir, Baladitya consulted his royal astrologer who foretold that it would be his son-in-law who would succeed him. So he got his daughter, Anangalekha, married to an ordinary but able officer in his administration. His name was Durlav Vardhana. The king hoped to forestall destiny by selecting a insignificant spouse for his daughter. But Durlav Vardhana ascended the throne in 625 CE. About five years after Durlav Vardhana's ascension, the Chinese Buddhist monk, scholar and traveller, Swansong, visited India and reached Kashmir in 631 CE. Durla Vardhana's maternal uncle received the monk, who was accorded a grand welcome and led to meet the king in a procession on a bedecked elephant. Sang's account gives us a picture of Kashmir during this time and its political expanse and importance in contemporary geopolitics. He alludes to the expansion of Kashmir under Durla Vardhana as places like Takshila, which was part of the Kamboj Kingdom or Dardistan in Kashmir's immediate neighbourhood. 
Simhapura Orsa, which is today's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa in Pakistan, Poonch and Rajpuri, which is today's Rajori, they all had become vassal states of Kashmir. Neighboring kingdoms kept trying to attack Kashmir but never succeeded in their attempts. According to Sang, the Kashmiri people were eager learners, though cunning, and lived harmoniously among themselves despite following various faiths. Kashmir was indeed cosmopolitan because despite being a Shaivite, the king was deeply tolerant of the Vaishnav and Buddhist faiths. Kashmir in fact became a pivotal force for Buddhism in the region and facilitated its spread to China, Tibet and Central Asia. In fact, it is believed that Tibetan Buddhism had its origin in Kashmir. A peculiar feature of the Buddhism in Kashmir was the deep influence of Shaivism on it with the advent of deities like Avalokiteshvara and Manjushri drawn from the Shiv Shakti theology of Hinduism. The imperial Chinese court records of this time mention that between 627 and 649 CE, Kashmir's king Durlavardhana had established control over the route between China and Kabul, thereby enabling the Chinese ambassador to travel freely on this route. This implies that although Durlavardhana did not rule over Kabul directly, he exerted political influence there because of possibly annexing surrounding regions within a few years of coming to power. After Durlavardhana's death in 661 CE, his son, Durlabaka, ascended the throne and assumed the name of Pratapaditya. In a glorious and peaceful 50-year reign, he expanded the frontiers of Kashmir till Jalandhar in Punjab. To him were born three sons, Chandrapida, Tarapida and Muktapida. Chandrapida was the eldest son. He succeeded his father on the latter's death in 711 CE, but he ruled for only eight years and eight months. As his deceitful brother, Tarapida, allegedly got him killed through a sorcerer by employing some black magic spells, and he became the king. Kalhan is ruthless in his admonishment of Tarapida as a barbarian who created terror by his glory mangled with blood on account of the fratricide. A despotic reign born of such an unethical act ended similarly in a short while. Around the end of 724 CE, his own Brahmin officers conspired against Tarapida and employed similar black magic sorcery to have him eliminated. This sort of reminds me of what Chanakya did to uh, Dhananand. And this tells you the role of the Brahmins of Hindu society. When they saw that a king did not deserve to rule, that when a king was a barbarian, they figured out a way to get rid of him. And we've seen that throughout history, whether it was in the times of Chanakya, whether it is the, in the case of the story that I'm telling you right now, or whether it was in the case of Marana Pratap, many, many, many centuries later. And it's quite amusing that the Brahmins got rid of uh, Tarapida in the same way that he got rid of uh, Chandrapida through black magic spells. So quite a fitting end. But it was at this point of political flux within the kingdom that the youngest brother, Muktapida, was crowned king in 724 CE. Upon his ascent to the throne, he assumed the name of Lalitaditya. Though completely silent about the new king's younger days, Kalhan gushes about his ascent to power. He says, After Tarapida, Sri Lalitaditya became the universal monarch, he who was far beyond the conception of fate, which creates only rulers of limited territories. He bedecked the elephant-like Jambudweep by the glory of his military exploits. For rivers which have set out from their own region, the ocean is the limit. 
but nowhere is there a limit for those who are frankly aspiring to be conquerors. Lalitaditya Muktabida's reign was to mark the veritable golden era in the annals of Kashmir's history. And at this time, before we proceed with the story of Lalitaditya, it is important to understand the geopolitical situation in and around Central Asia when he assumed power. The southern Hindukush region in the 8th century was occupied by three powerful kingdoms. The Kapisha, which is the present-day Kabul, Zabulistan, which is present-day Ghazni, and the Kashmir of the Karakotas. Kapisha and Zabulistan were under Turkshahi rulers who were Buddhists and descendants of the Turkish king Burhatakin. Some historians have claimed that the dynasties of Kabul and Zabulistan were Hindu by faith. The three kingdoms had asserted themselves after breaking away from the White Huns who held sway over Gandhara and Kashmir after the weakening of the Gupta Empire. Notably, all the three maintained close and congenial ties with the imperial power on their eastern frontier, China, which was under one of the most powerful and prosperous dynasties, the Thang. Regular delegations from their courts to and from China corroborate this fact. The three powers often collaborated with China in their efforts to prevent another pesky expansionist power in the region, Tibet, from penetrating deeper into the Hindu Kush Pamir belt. At the foot of the towering peaks of the Himalayas, the ancient Tibetan people, the Bard, emerged victorious from their age-old inter-tribal rivalry and established a unified monarchy of the Yarkong Spurgyal family. Towards the west, a series of historical events led to a sudden rise of the Arabs. After the passing away of Muhammad, the founder of Islam, in 632 CE, four of his companions succeeded him as leaders of the Muslim community, Abu Bakr, Umar, Usman and Ali. They assumed the title of Khalifa or Caliph, that literally meant the one who follows behind. After consolidating the authority of the Islamic nerve center of Medina over the various nomadic Arab tribes, the Caliphs undertook an expansion of territory and of their faith. Umar, the second Caliph, diverted the martial power of the Arabs against the two prominent powers of the time, the Byzantine and the Sassanian empires. Byzantine territories of Syria, Palestine and Egypt and the Sassanian territories of Persia and Iraq fell to Arab might that was propelled by the desire to conquer the land of infidels, pagans and idolaters as an ordained holy work of God. This religious zeal unified them further to an extent that within a century of the passing away of their prophet, the empire of the Caliphs had emerged as a global power that dominated Central Asia and North Africa, touching the shores of the Atlantic in the west and knocking at the very gates of India on the east. Syrians, Persians, Berbers, Turks and others were rapidly Islamized and their languages and cultures Arabicized. Trade, especially that of silk, played an important role in the economic and consequently political life of the kingdoms, ensuing constant skirmishes with each other for supremacy over the commercial passages. The possession of Gilgit and its neighbour Baltistan was of great strategic importance to all the players. For Tibet, it allowed control over the main route from Kashgar through the Mintaka Pass to Kashmir and the Indus Valley and made it possible for them to establish direct contact with the Turkic tribes of the Tarim area and the Arabs of Central Asia. The Sino-Tibetan rivalry, which lasted for over two centuries, brought several other powers in the region into the conflict that was driven by a motley combination of commercial interests. Control over these strategic locations kept oscillating between the different competitors, 
Political, trade, military and even matrimonial alliances were constantly stitched to keep one another at bay and gain greater control over the trade routes. The politico-religious force of the Arabs that had subjugated several countries and people across the world was to now make a violent interaction with a living faith that was possibly as old as human civilization itself, India. Historian Ram Gopal Mishra states, The early successes of Islam were against religions that had lost their hold on the minds of the people. But in India, the Hindu way of life, symbolized by high moral values of tolerance, truthfulness and justice, was very much the part and parcel of the vast multitude's mental and material being. Unable to face the persecution of the Arabs, a large group of Persians abandoned their homes towards the end of the 7th century to set sail to Gujarat, near the site of the later colony of Sanjan. They were welcomed and sheltered by the king of Gujarat and they were to become the ethnic community of the Parsis, who are still a thriving group in contemporary India. This innate, embracive and inclusive nature of the Hindu faith that allowed every strand of religious opinion including atheism and, and agnosticism made the Indian society that Islam encountered as one that was just vibrant and adherent to its tenets. As Arab cartographer Muhammad al-Idrisi noted, the Indians are naturally inclined to justice and never depart from it in their actions. Their good faith, honesty and fidelity to their engagements are well known. And they are so famous for these qualities that people flock to their country from every side and hence the country is flourishing and their condition prosperous. Several of these chronicles of the invaders themselves, the historians and the early Arab travellers clearly reveal that quite unlike the popular myth about the decadence in the social and moral values of Indian society being the cause of her subjugation by foreign powers, it was these invasions that resulted in this decline. A little over a decade before the rise of Lalit Aditya to the throne of Kashmir, calamity struck the province of Sindh, ruled by a Brahmin family founded by Chacharai. It had valorously repelled the repeated Arab onslaughts mounted under the reign of several Umayyad caliphs. Arab invasion of India at Thane, Baruch and Debal in Sindh were all valiantly repulsed. During the Debal expedition, the leader of the Arab army, Al-Mugira, was defeated and killed by Chacha. So jolted were the Arabs by this crushing defeat that any successive plans made by the Caliph to attack India were always met with apprehension and never got a sanction. During the Caliphate of Abu Sufyan, the Arabs made as many as six determined efforts to conquer Kikan, a frontier post of Sindh, but failed miserably every single time. But soon, a good pretext for a final kill offered itself. Some ships that were conveying male and female Muslim pilgrims from Ceylon with valuable gifts of jewels and pearls from the king of Ceylon to Caliph were compelled by the adverse winds to go to Debal, which is about 60 kilometers from today's Karachi. It was a seaport town of Sindh, and Chinese traveller Swan Songs also mentions that the whole delta was infested with robbers and sea pirates who often created hurdles in the sea trade routes. On coming to know about this ship that was carrying precious gifts, the pirates attacked it. They plundered the wealth and took all the passengers hostage. Raja Dahar, the son of Chacharai, who was in power, pleaded his inability to the Arabs to overpower the pirates. That is the work of a band of robbers, he claimed. They do not even care for us. One of the Caliph's most notable governors, Al-Hajjaj, induced him to declare a jihad against Sindh to avenge this attack. Budel was sent to attack Sindh, but his armies were routed, 
and he too was killed by Dahar's son Jaisimha. The Arab empire that had successfully vanquished so many superpowers was being routed repeatedly in India, and this shook the caliph. He was indignant at Hajjaj for these misadventures, but the latter made it a prestigious issue to win this expedition at any cost. Accordingly, Hajjaj's son-in-law, Muhammad bin Qasim, was sent to conquer Sindh in 710 CE, with 6,000 men from Syria joining him, along with battering rams and catapults to assail fortified towns. Before reaching Sindh via the Bolan Pass, Qasim had to face stiff resistance from the Turkshahi rulers and Kashmir's Chandrapida. But Qasim managed to reach Sindh and attack the Debal port. The town was surrounded by a large fort, at the centre of which was a towering stupa. The Tachnama that chronicles the exploits of the Sindh royal family states that the stupa was surmounted by such a flag, such a large flag, that when the wind blew, it used to fly all over the town and touched the turrets of the fort wall. The belief was that the stupa had a magical talisman in it, and if it stood and the flag fluttered, Debal would never fall to any conqueror. An insider, however, turned treacherous and informed Qasim about this secret, and hence the stupa and the flag became the first target of his battering artillery. Debal fell to the invaders on the ninth day of the conquest. The conquerors gave their first lessons of a bloody conquest to the Hindu and Buddhist population of Debal by massacring the entire male population of the town in a gory bloodbath. Women were taken as slaves and the town was pillaged. Debal was largely Buddhist, as was its governor, who ran to take shelter against Dahar's son Jaisimha. Raja Dahar had all along complacently presumed that the port would resist these attacks, like it had done so successfully in the past. But this invasion was different, given the superior military might and weapons of destruction of the Arabs that were unknown to the Indian side. Qasim obviously had not come all the way to merely capture a small seaport. After its capture, he advanced towards Brahmanabad, the summer capital of Sindh, defeating several chieftains en route. Dahar decided to take on the enemy frontally and left his capital Alor and marched towards Rewad to halt Qasim's victorious march. And here something happened that many Hindu kings would experience later in the history as well. About 500 Arabs who were in Raja Dahar's army under one Alafi and who could have assisted in knowing the mind and strategy of the invaders deserted Dahar as they were reluctant to attack their co-religionists. This Alafi had been given shelter by Raja Dahir. He had been given protection against his fellow Arabs by Raja Dahir. But when those Arabs attacked Sindh, this same fellow Alafi refused to help Raja Dahir because he would not attack his co-religionist. He would not attack another Muslim. And as those of you who know history will know, this happened many times later as well. Undeterred by this treachery, Dahar faced Qasim's forces along with Jaisim. He bravely declared, My plan is to meet the Arabs in open battle and fight with them with all possible vigour. If I overpower them, I shall crush them to death, and my kingdom will then be put on a firm footing. But if I am killed honourably, the event will be recorded in the books of Arabia and Hind, and will be talked of by great men. And it will be said that such and such a king sacrificed his precious life for the sake of his country, in fighting with the enemy. When the two armies finally met in a dreadful conflict, for a while it seemed that Sindhi forces had an upper hand at the battle. But again, the opponent's numerical strength, treachery of insiders and sheer bad luck turned the game against Raja Dahir. A burning arrow fired by an Arabian rearguard 
pierced his white elephant. The scared animal ran towards the river where the Arabian encampment had been established. Dahar single-handedly fought the Arab soldiers till an arrow pierced his shoulder and another got buried in his throat. The last mighty Hindu king of Sindh had thus fallen in 712 CE. His decapitated head was sent back as a gift to the caliph. The capital of Sindh was pillared to the last brick. 60,000 people, including several women of princely families, were taken as slaves. Dahar's wife, Rani Bai, decided to defend the fortress of Raur with about 15,000 warriors but eventually gave up. Bin Qasim molested and forcefully married one of Dahar's wives, Lati, while Rani Bai immolated herself along with several Rajput women after failing to protect the fortress. Perhaps the first instance of Jauhar in India. Raja Dahar's daughters, Surya Devi and Parimal Devi, were packed off to the Caliph's harem. After giving some resistance even after Dahar's death, Jaisimha fled from Sindh and was given shelter in Kashmir. This incensed Ben Qasim, who attacked Kashmir, but he could only reach till the border of the kingdom at Jalantar, as he was given a stiff opposition by Chandrapida. Qasim was forced to turn away and instead attack the smaller kingdom of Kangra in Himachal Pradesh. Thus, Chandrapid had managed to keep the borders of Kashmir safe against the Arab army that was equipped both with the latest weaponry and brutal savagery. Qasim had planned to attack Kannauj too, but his envoy, who had been sent to the court of Kannauj's ruler, Raja Harichandra, with an order to surrender, was given a dressing down. Even before Qasim could react, he had by then received a stern message from the Caliph to return immediately. Because Raja Dahar's daughter, Surya Devi, was somehow able to convince the Caliph that Bin Qasim had already used her, and therefore she was not worthy of being a part of the Caliph's harem. The angry Caliph issued orders to arrest Bin Qasim and drag him to Baghdad, stitched and packed in a leather box. Bin Qasim meekly followed the orders, but died en route due to suffocation. Later, Surya Devi confessed to the Caliph that she had lied to him, only to avenge her father's death from Bin Qasim. The angry Caliph ordered his soldiers to bury her and her sister alive in the ground. Both sisters died, but as true warriors, they had avenged their father's death. Thus ended the story of the royal house of Sindh in great tragedy. Sindh remained under the distant rule of the caliphs, with different governors stationed at Multan to administer the province and several subordinate governors in the minor towns of the Indus. The Arabs could not extend their conquests into the Indian mainland due to the stiff resistance they faced during each such misadventure and with the passage of time, their influence remained shrunk to Multan and Mansura. A major roadblock to their expansionist plans was Kashmir. Lalitaditi was conscious of the Arab plans to avenge Kashmir and to conquer it under the new governor of Sindh, Junaid al-Murri. Crossing the Punjab border, he took on Junaid's forces and defeated them and returned to his capital triumphantly. He managed to check Arab expansion in the region as Junaid never dared to attack Kashmir again. One reason for Lalitadit's victory over the Arabs was that his army largely comprised cavalry and foot soldiers. Indian kings usually had more elephants in their armies, while their opponents, the Arabs, used faster-moving and agile horses and camels. But they seemed to have met their match in Lalitaditya. After facing a defeat in Kashmir, Junaid shifted his focus. He subjugated Kangada, turned towards Kutch and Rajasthan and took over Jodhpur and Jaisalmer and Baroch in Gujarat. However, this victory march was halted. A united and strong Hindu confederacy of Nagbatta I, of Bappa Rawal, 
of Pulkeshi Raja and Jaibhad IV, and other kings dealt the death blows on Junaid, who had now suffered three reverses in a row after what had seemed an invincible Arab conquest in Sindh, Multan, Balochistan and Gandhar. The Chalukyan king Vikramaditya II, who ruled from Badami, and his feudatory, the Rashtrakut ruler Dantidurga, lent support to Pulkeshi Raja, thereby successfully stemming Arab incursion into the Rajasthan-Gujarat regions in the 730s. Junaid then decided to move menacingly towards central India, towards Ujjain that was ruled by the king of Kannauj, Yashovarman. But in a diplomatic checkmate against the Arabs, Lalitaditya and Yashovarman join hands in a strategic alliance to repel and defeat them. Junaid was recalled by the Caliph. The Arab trade centres in Sindh decayed, the momentum in trade deaccelerated and the emboldened Vassal states stopped paying taxes. Arab power shrunk to merely the Debal port in just two decades after the victorious rampage over Sindh. Lalitaditya utilised this opportunity of a weakened power to chase the Arabs away. Arab soldiers were scared to go to India ever again. After the Arabs were defanged, it took nearly three centuries for invasions from the West, starting with the Turkish forces of Ghazni, to even consider invading India and her frontiers. This speaks of the heroic resistance that was put up by the Indian powers against an expansionist, marauding global hegemony. After driving back the Arabs around 730 CE, Lalit turned his attention towards consolidating Kashmir's influence over Kabul, Gandhar, Zabulistan and Tokharistan. Though these were hitherto friendly states, they had been increasingly weakened due to the frequent skirmishes with the Arabs. In the recent past, in 700 CE, these Turkshahi kingdoms under one of the brave kings Ranbal had forced Hajjaj into complete submission and became a hero across Central Asia. However, these powerful frontier states had slowly weakened. Additionally, these kingdoms were of strategic importance for Kashmir, since five crucial trade routes passing through the Gilgit split into different directions from Tokharistan. It was hence important for Lalit Aditya to reduce Arab ascendancy on these routes and also safeguard them against the prying attacks from Tibet. Between 725 and 730 CE, Lalit Aditya kept a close watch on the Tibet border to prevent any incursions. He crushed the rebellions of the Darads of Gilgit and revolts influenced by Tibet in tribal kingdoms of the Chitral region. Lalit Aditya seemed to have installed loyalists or retained the incumbents in states such as Kabul, Zabulistan and Tokharistan as quasi-independent feudatories. For instance, in 729 CE, the exiled ruler of Tokharistan had sent a delegation to China for help against the Arabs, but got no response from the imperial court. But Lalit Aditya stepped up. He defeated the Arabs in the ongoing campaign. He freed Tokharistan and the trade routes passing through it and installed the exiled ruler as the king. Though it remained a semi-independent state, Tokharistan had to accept the supremacy of Lalit Aditya. It was perhaps during this Tokharistan campaign that Lalit Aditya met Chankuna, a skilled army general whose military skills impressed him. He took Chankuna onto his side to employ modern and Turkish and Chinese-style army formations for the Kashmir army. While Lalit Aditya was away in the conquest of Tokharistan, Tibet began to eye central and eastern India, Madhya Desh, Magad and Wang, which is today's Bengal. As the local power in that region, Yashovarman of Kannauj, had to defend the borders against Tibetan onslaughts. In 731 CE, he even sent a delegation to China under the minister Simhagupta, seeking help from an imminent threat to his dominions from Tibet. China was then grappling with immense internal turmoil and rebellions, 
and was averse to engaging in any external conflicts. With no help forthcoming from China, Yashovarman took on Tibet independently. After his conquests to subjugate the Turkish states, Lalitaditi II joined this battle by attacking Tibet from a different direction. The combined attacks of both these kings ensured that the five trade routes were completely freed from Tibetan control around 733 CE. For about four to five years thereafter, Tibet remained largely subdued in its attacks on the trade routes, and the credit for that goes to the resistance posed by the Indian kings Lalitaditya and Yashovarman. The fact that the successes of Lalitaditya left an indelible imprint on the minds of Kashmiri people is illustrated in the account of the 11th century Iranian scholar Al-Biruni. In his Kitab al-Hind, he records that Kashmiris celebrated a festival every year to commemorate the victory of Lalitaditya over the Turks. That such a festival was witnessed and recorded even four centuries after him implies that his victories and exploits must have been so grand so as to have still been a part of the public memory. Other historians, however, attribute that this festival was celebrated by Kashmiris on the second day of the Hindu month of Chaitra to celebrate the victory of Lalitaditya over Tibet. For maintaining a lasting dominance over the Gilgit and the trade routes, Lalitaditya sent an emissary to the Thang court in 733 CE, seeking an alliance and stationing a permanent joint military base. Now, given today's geopolitical scenario, it's quite amusing that India and China are coming together to set up a joint military base and their common enemy, the bad guy, are the Tibetans. It's quite something. In the past too, the Tang dynasty had sent a delegation to the Karkota court in 722 CE expressing their gratitude to Tarapida for providing food supplies and military assistance to the Chinese army that had established its base in Gilgit. But this time around, in 733 CE, China was in no position to respond to this generous offer of Lalitaditya as the Thong emperor was busy quelling the rebellion of his general. Civil wars and dissensions were tearing the Thong empire apart and as a consequence, the Chinese emperor had to flee his capital. These successful campaigns against the Arabs, Turks and Tibetans brought for Kashmir immense prestige and wealth from war spoils. It was at this juncture in his reign that Lalitaditya seems to have conceived the idea of leaving his legacy behind on the footprints of time by becoming a master builder of iconic monuments and cities. He established a new capital city named Parihaspur, the city of joy, which is today's Paraspur, about 22 kilometers from Srinagar. A massive palace for himself was also built and the construction of four grand temples other than the Martanda Sun Temple were commissioned at Parihaspur. These temples were called Parihaskeshav, Muktakeshav, Govardhan Dev, and Mahavaraha. Kalhan states that the idol of Parihaskeshav was made of 3,600 kilograms of silver, while the Muktakeshav idol was made of 84,000 tolas, which is 840 kilos of gold. A 54 arm length tall Garuda pillar was also erected, inspired by the gigantic sculptures of the Buddha at the Bamiyan. The Litaditya also had a Chaitya established in his capital with a giant Buddha statue that was made of 62,000 kilos of copper and it seemed to reach the sky. After a brief hiatus from the battlefield, Lalitaditya seemed to have set out on what Kalhan describes as his Digvijay. It was a campaign in ancient India that a king undertook, in all the proverbial four directions against their political opponents, and after a victory, he was declared as a Chakravarti. Quite ironically, the first target of this campaign was his ally in his expeditions against the Arabs and the Turks, 
Yashovarman of Kannauj. Some scholars say that Yashovarman's own successful Digvijay expeditions, conquering Bengal, Bihar, Haryana and parts of Rajasthan, made Lalitaditya both jealous as well as insecure. The last straw in this thawed friendship between the two hitherto allies was a long-drawn encampment by Yashovarman in Kurukshetra, which was quite near the border of the domain of Lalitaditya. It is quite possible that Lalitaditya declared war when Yashovarman tried to extend his boundaries at Jalandhar up to the Yamuna, on his way to the Doab region between the Ganga and the Yamuna, where Kannauj was located, Lalitaditya vanquished smaller kingdoms such as Kangra, Kumaon, Lohara, Garhwal, etc. And he brought all of them under the suzerainty of Kashmir. When the armies of the two equally competent and valorous warrior kings met, it was naturally a long-drawn skirmish that left the armies and soldiers exhausted. There are very few details of this war, but what we do know is that Lalitaditya eventually emerged victorious. Yeshovarman sent a draft peace treaty to his friend turned foe, Rather inadvertently, or maybe knowingly, in the treaty, he preceded his own name before that of Lalitaditya. This supposed lapse and breach of protocol by the vanquished towards the victor was spotted by an alert minister of Lalitaditya who brought it to the notice of the monarch, who was enraged. The peace treaty was shredded and Kashmir's forces remounted an attack that resulted in a complete rout for Yeshavarman who was made a vassal of Lalitaditya. He remained a feudatory of Kashmir till his death in 753 CE. All the territories that were part of Kannauj now came under the control of Kashmir. To stamp his suzerainty over these places, which included the latest conquests of Yashavarman and Magad, God and Wang, Lalitaditya marched along to all these kingdoms, parading his new vassal to instill a sense of fear in the feudatories and to let them know who their new master was. Without a war with any of these kingdoms, all of them came under the control of Kashmir, which now extended from the northern banks of Yamuna to river Kalika around Gwalior. The Kannauj country became the courtyard of his house for Lalitaditya, potentially making it the largest empire of contemporary India. After his victory, Lalitaditya took back all the scholars and poets along with him, Vakpati, Bhavabhuti, Kamalayuddha, Atrigupta, all these scholars and intellectuals from Kannauj were taken back to the Kashmir court. Of these, Atri Gupta was an ancestor of the most celebrated icon of Kashmir Shaivism, Abhinav Gupta. In the Indic imagination of the building of an empire, not only were massive structures, palaces and temples important, but the emergence of an intellectual and philosophical centre for excellence and learning was also paramount. After this conquest, Kalhan makes Lalitaditya set off on a triumphant conquest across the length and the breadth of India, which seems extremely mythical and legendary. From Bengal, he moved towards Kaling and brought it under his sway. But Kashmir's control of this region was short-lived, as the Bhomkar dynasty became a prominent power in Kaling towards the end of the 8th century. From Kaling, we see a victory march of Lalitaditya moving southwards to Karnataka where Kalhan mentions a certain Queen Ratta sending him an emissary seeking help. Contextualizing the dominant queens of the south during this time, Ratta perhaps is an allusion to the Rashtrakut queen Bhavnaga. She was a princess of the dynasty of the Chalukyas from Gujarat and was abducted and married by Indra I of the lineage of the Rashtrakuta. After Indra's death, Bhavnaga was the regent queen of the minor Dantidurga. With her brother-in-law Krishna casting threats on the throne, she is supposed to have sought the help of Lalitaditya as he was right there in the vicinity of the Kaling. 
along with his vassals Jeevit Gupta of God and Yashavarman, Lalitaditya is said to have come to her aid against her detractors. At the end of a long war campaign, Lalitaditya returned to his capital in 744 CE. He had built one of the largest contemporary empires of India and stamped the dominance of Kashmir in the subcontinent. After a period of lull in the Gilgit-Baltistan region for four to five years, after the defeat to the combined forces of Lalitaditya and Yashoburman, Tibet once again began to flex its muscles. In 737 CE, the Tibetan army tried to regain control over the important trade routes of the region. But Lalitaditya once again forced them to retreat after inflicting a crushing defeat. Almost a decade later, in 747 CE, when the Tibetan aggression made a menacing reappearance, China sent its military to join Lalitaditya in order to repel Tibet. The combined forces won yet another decisive victory over Tibet in a war where Kashmir provided military and civil assistance along with food supplies to the Chinese army. The trade routes to Khorasan and Kandhar were thus secured. In a region where control normally oscillated between the powers, it was the efforts of Lalitaditya with and without the Chinese that kept the region free from Tibet for a long period from 731 to 747 CE. The Tibet was subdued, its ally at the Jiyashi Kingdom in the Kashkar Chitral Mountain region, strategically placed between Kashmir and Gilgit, kept mounting low-intensity attacks. A concern about this was raised by Tokhristan II when it sent a delegation to the Chinese court in 749 CE, drawing attention to the nuisance from Jiyashi. They also told the Chinese to renew its successful alliance with Kashmir that had stood the test of time and wars and to win over the king of Kashmir through giving costly gifts. These recommendations were promptly acted upon by the Chinese court. In 750 CE, the forces of Lalitaditya along with the Chinese army sacked the Jiyashi. Its ruler, Botemo, was deposed and his elder brother, Sojia, put in his place as a vassal. Each time he won significant battles, Lalitaditya established new towns and constructed temples in the classic mold of an empire builder. After the capital city of Parihaspur, to commemorate his foreign victories, he established Sunishitpur and Darpitapur towns. Unfortunately, there are no traces of these towns anymore in contemporary Kashmir. His three wives also undertook many construction and charity projects as well. Kamlavati was his favourite spouse, who he probably married before his coronation as the king of Kashmir. Chakramardika was the middle queen, while Rishan Devi was the youngest, who was possibly a Turkish princess who he had married during the Tokharistan kabul Gandhar campaign. Chakramardika founded a town called Chakrapur that had nearly 7,000 homes. A grand marketplace called Kamalhat came up in Parihaspur with an idol of Kamal Keshav installed there. Ishan Devi had a huge water reservoir constructed in Parihaspur. In the town of Hushpur, which is today's Ushkur, Lalitaditya installed the idol of Sri Mukhswami and built a stone temple of Jeteshwara, donating several villages for their upkeep. At Lokpunya, a Vishnu temple was established, while in Sri Raja, a marvellous Narhari temple was built. The Narhari temple was fitted with magnets above and below it, and due to this, it was kept floating in midair. It seems that Lalitaditya made his vassal states contribute to the architectural beauty of Kashmir by building structures there. Historians mention two viharas in Kashmir that were built by a Turkish prince of Kabul and a Turkish queen, and royal guests from Tokharistan regularly visited Kashmir. Rope machines and water wheels were installed on the Jhelum, 
to pump water to villages that were on elevated ranges and therefore water-starved. Kalhan mentions such water systems being installed in Chakrapur on the banks of the Jhelum. Several dams were built over rivers to harness water and a network of roads linked Kashmir Valley with the outside world. Given the constant flooding in the Jhelum due to silting, Lalit Aditya had this cleared and constructed canals to supply water to distant locations. Swamps were reclaimed and buns built in low-lying areas to make them fit for farming. As an astute administrator, he constituted a cabinet of five top-ranking officials who collectively formed what was known as the Panch Mahashabd. Despite heaping encomiums on Lalit Aditya, Kalhan also brings to the fore several of the monarch's shortcomings. One of them was his alcoholism, under the sway of which he often took brash decisions that he later repented. So much so that he even ordered his ministers once that the orders he issued when intoxicated should never be followed. An interesting story that Kalhan mentions is the story of the killing of the god king who had been offered protection by Lalit Aditya and who, when he was visiting Kashmir, was killed secretly by a spy named Tikshana. The soldiers of the dead king, the dead god king, decided to avenge his murder. Under the pretext of visiting the temple of goddess Sharda, they entered Kashmir and besieged the temple of Parihas Keshav. They thought that the god had led their master down. The priests of the temple shut all the doors to protect the murti. The soldiers, however, mistakenly or intentionally, then attacked the Ramaswamy temple and destroyed the idol completely. This was a rare and tragic case of the soldiers of one principality destroying a sacred space of a Hindu co-religionist for political purposes. The idol that was so destroyed had a fantastic story behind it. The king, on his daily horse rides to the forest, noticed a few women who sang and danced at the same spot each day. When questioned, they mentioned that they were Devdasis from the town of Shurvardhan and had been instructed by their mother to dance at that very location daily. On excavating the spot, two ancient ruins of temples with idols of Sri Ram and his brother Lakshman were found to everybody's surprise. Lalit Aditya then installed the idol of Sri Ram in a stone temple in Parihaspur that was known as the Ramaswami temple and his queen Chakramadika had the Lakshman Murti installed in another shrine. It was this idol of Hori legends that got caught in the political crossfire and tragically destroyed. The year 751 CE turned out to be pretty bad for China. The Arabs under the command of Ziyad joined hands with the Karluks and other Turkic people to mount a combined attack on the Thang dynasty that was already beset with internal turmoil. They easily defeated the Chinese forces paving the way for the later Islamization of the whole area. This left the Arabs in a strong position to extend their influence over a large part of Central Asia. However, chronicled evidence of both Chinese and Tibetan sources reveals that the Tibetans temporarily checked any further advance of the Arab power. Even as China was reeling under the impact of the rebellion, the new Tibetan king attacked the Chinese capital with an army of 200,000 soldiers defeating the defenders and forcing the Chinese emperor to flee from his capital to Shancheng. The rout in the war with the Arabs, the bloody rebellion and the Tibetan attack brought the tottering Thang Empire to its very knees. China had to withdraw its forces from several regions in and around its vast empire to redirect them towards the numerous internal skirmishes and external attacks. 
they had vacated from the Takhl Makan and Gobi deserts and the Tarim. In view of these developments, the Takhl Makan, a cold desert, had very little water and was considered hazardous to cross for the merchant caravans that passed through the Silk Route. Given the confusion in China, Lalit Aditya was seized by a strong urge to bring these vast areas under his suzerainty, and he set out on what Kalhan terms as the Uttarpath campaign. In his final years, Lalit Aditya conquered this Tarim Valley and also the city-states in Taklamakan and Gobi deserts around 755 CE. History remains silent on the extent of this mysterious campaign or the victories that Lalit Aditya earned. However, it is quite probable that he did traverse the Taklamakan desert and carried Kashmir's flag to hitherto uncharted territories. When his ministers back in Kashmir did not hear from him in a long time, they sent messengers to trace him and send their inquiries about his well-being. Lalit Aditya was apparently agitated by this move, and he is said to have told them, What sort of attachment is this on your part, that you want me to return having come to this country? I am achieving victories on newer regions here. What greater work is waiting for me back home? The river having left its origin shall ultimately merge in the ocean. How to decide the limit of time for the journey of a king? who has likewise left his kingdom for victory. Therefore, O ministers, I tell you some basic principles to manage the kingdom in my absence. Please run the state according to them, without any hindrance or blemish. He also instructed them that in case he never returned, his eldest son from Kamla Devi, Kuvalipita, should be crowned king, and if found wanting, he should be dismissed. He had a special word for his favourite grandson, Jayapita, to emulate his grandfather and carry forward the legacy. In a tragic and mysterious turn of events, Lalit Aditya never returned from this far north campaign. A monarch whose life and achievements were coloured by fantastic legends had his death too shrouded in equal myth and mystery. Various theories abound of how he met his end. According to one legend that Kalhan mentions, the Kashmir battalion was struck with severe water shortage in the midst of their expedition within the Taklamakan desert. An emissary of a rival king appeared as an impostor trying to guide them to a water source and misled them to their eventual nemesis. On his disappearance and death, Kalhan states with poetic flourish. He says, Some say the king died because of the enormous snowfall. Some say he submitted himself to fire when faced with an imminent inevitable danger to preserve his eternal prestige. Some others say in the Uttarpath, that is beyond the human reach but easily reachable for the divine beings, that king went into the earth along with his army. Just like the story of his astonishing achievements is told, the various wondrous stories about his death are also narrated. When the sun sets, some say it drowned in the sea, some say it entered the fire and some say he, the sun, went to another country. Likewise, many marvellous stories are related to the death of the great men. Just as he abruptly arose from the scene in Kashmir's history, after such an iconic and illustrious reign, Lalit Aditya, hailed as the second Samudragupta, slowly disappeared from popular consciousness and historiography of India. The Karakota dynasty could not produce another conqueror as glorious and brave as Lalit Aditya, and it collapsed under the weight of its own contradictions a century later by 855 CE. 
like the gigantic edifices he established have defied time and survived till date as magnificent ruins. The stories of chivalry of Aditya, his victories and his charitable works have survived too, in local folklore and in public memory. Aditya Muktapida thus created a permanent niche for himself, not only in the history of India, but that of Central and South Asia, positing the primacy of Kashmir as a political, spiritual, intellectual and cultural focal point that was integral to the subcontinent. This was the story of Larita Aditya Muktapita. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It is very important to know our history and uh, people like him. I believe that such heroes should be remembered. They not only add to our uh, civilizational memory, they also remind us that uh, we were never the people who shied away from a fight. If you like this podcast or if you have any other feedback, do send me a message on Instagram or you can leave a comment below. And please follow me on all the social media channels. The name is the same everywhere on WhatsApp, on Twitter, on Instagram, Telegram, Indologia, I-N-D-O-L-O-G-I-A. And if you haven't subscribed to my podcast, please do, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Google or on Spotify. Till the next time I see you, Jai Hind, Vande Mataram.